Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. Safe to assume that's that's Maurice? That's unmistakably Maurice. That's classic Maurice, mm-hmm. right? All right I'm Ma- waiting down here. Bu- Maurice, I'm buzzing you in. Conversations about collaboration, episode 25. Tamara Adlin joins me for a rockin' chat. We talk about personas, collaborations, executive alignment, shiny new things, and yes, the classic Pink Floyd album, Dark Side of the Moon. Let's rock and roll. Tamara, where does this pod find you? I'm in sunny Seattle this morning. Sunny Seattle. All right, let's get into it. You talk and speak a lot about executive wrangling and alignment. Talk to me about that and how that relates to collaboration. Well, I am somebody who came up through the world of user experience. And in user experience, we try to help companies design products that are easier to use for regular human beings. And I was discovering that no matter how well-oiled the machine was to build great products, that somehow companies were still not able to launch really great stuff. And so I kept, as one does, I kept swimming upstream to find where's the problem. Like there's something bigger than, than us here. And sure enough, there was something bigger than us here. And it was the executive team. And what I finally decided was that long story short, if the executive team isn't super crystal clear and focused, if they're not able to create and then communicate super crisp goals and instructions and clarity about what you're trying to build. It doesn't matter how great the communication and collaboration is in the layers below them, because inevitably, inevitably what will happen is that the teams will collaborate well, and they'll come up with some great design and they'll show it to the execs and the execs will say, well, that's not what we asked for. I think that's Mm -hmm. how our two worlds collide and connect um, is that I'm looking at, I, I, I think it's so cool that you're looking at, you know, how the tools that we use can either help us or hinder us in our communication. And I'm looking at how forces around us can uh, either help or hinder us as well. Okay. Let's unpack that a bit without naming any companies or people. Can you maybe give me an example of a time in which people were creating something and it got up to that executive level for sign-off or a launch or approval and the executive team said, no, that's not what we wanted. Oh my God, I can't because there are like a gazillion of them. I mean, anybody who's worked in product design um, has had this happen to them. It's everything from the old joke about make the logo bigger um, or the screen, you know, we need more blue or whatever. Wait, the logo bigger, is that the one in which they send it back and they make it one pixel bigger? No, it's more like um, when executives say something like, I don't feel like our brand is strong enough. They just say, make the logo bigger. And and that drives designers crazy because they're like, that is not the way to make the brand stronger. But the that happens all the time. The make the logo bigger thing happens all the time in in different words and, you know, different situations. Um, I think what happens is as as people and executives are people too, whether we like to admit it or not, uh, a lot of times it's hard to come up with something from scratch. But when you see something, you sort of know whether it's what you wanted or what you didn't. And so what happens is we think that execs or stakeholders are clear and they think they are too. And then you show them something you've designed and suddenly because they can see it in front of them, they're like, oh no, no, that's not it. 
right? Because now they're editing and now they see what's possible. It's interesting. It reminds me of the famous Justice Potter Stewart quote about a pornography case from the Supreme Court. I know it when I see it. Yeah. But I, I guess that some things are really hard to quantify, right? I remember watching um, behind the music, Dark Side of the Moon, when they were looking at album covers and they rejected a bunch of them. And then they saw the iconic one that's now almost 50 years old. They said, oh, that's it. And that's actually happened with some of my other favorite bands albums. They just said, no, 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 no. And there was one that goes, oh yeah, that one. So how do you minimize that sort of back and forth? Because if I were on the creative side, that would really irritate me. In fact, forget being terribly creative. Even my consulting career, sometimes people would need reports out of enterprise systems or whatever. Now that's not terribly creative, but there is collaboration and communication involved. So I build it and go, here you go. Oh, no, no, no. And this isn't just a different font or different sorting, but they wanted something that was structurally different that, that required me to go back to the drawing board. I think that's a really astute question. Interesting. I'm an astute guy. You're an astute guy. Look at you being all astute over there. Extra astuteness this morning. Um, so much worse. <laughs> okay. So I here's what I think, right? I think that designers and people who are creative don't mind doing iterations. What they mind is two things, being too in the dark about what you want from them right? And, and having to like sort of make it all up from scratch and you being too much in the details, in the weeds. So give me something that's cool is ter- a terrible request. And give me something that's where the logo is bigger on the other side of the spectrum is also a terrible request because it's too specific. So if that's the case, right, then my question, my challenge for myself became, where can we get the clarity that isn't in asking them, do you want a big you know, prism on the front of, you know, against a black background. Instead, where can we get the clarity of what we they want us to build? And it can't be in things like features and functionality, right? Because then there's too much argument. And that really is the equivalent of saying, I want the logo bigger. Where I focused instead is how can we change the conversation so that they're talking about something that isn't as political as who has the best idea for a feature, that isn't as specific as let's make it black with a rainbow on it, right? And that isn't as vague as let's make it cool. And so where where, where my focus was went as a user experience professional is the users and how do executive teams talk about who they're building a product for or an experience for. And often they talk about the word user or customer or reader or lender or administrator or whatever, right? And those words are so inspecific that they can mean that, you know, people can be picturing, I could say the word reader and you could be picturing somebody that's totally different than who I am, but we're both right. And we're still having this conversation as if we're on the same page. So what I focus on, you know, I, I wrote a couple books on the concept of personas which is the idea that instead of building a product for like a user, you build it for Maurice, who is coming back into the workforce after being at the, a stay-at-home dad for two years, right? And he was this amazing marketing guy, and now everything has changed with social and all of that stuff. And he's trying to figure out the best way to spend his time and money re-educating himself in order to come in, not at the entry level, right? And so all of a sudden, we can picture Maurice, and that's different than a job seeker. 
right? We can get way more specific about ideas for Maurice. And we can also decide, do you and I both agree that Maurice, somebody coming back to the workforce, is the one we really want to delight the most? And so having those kinds of conversations at the executive level and getting them to agree, let's focus on Maurice, a designer can take that and say, make it cool for Maurice and run with it. If you have a designer listening to you now, they probably already have all sorts of ideas to make it cool for Maurice that are different than they they would have if you say, let's make it cool for Sandra. Hmm. Talk to me a little bit about personas in the whole design process, because I'm familiar with personas when it comes to agile methods like Scrum. Yep. Is it any different when it comes to design? You know, it's, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, the idea, the fundamental idea behind personas is that we are hardwired as human beings to relate to other human beings. We are not hardwired to relate to data points and bullets and market research and things like that. If, if I ask you, if I called you, Phil, in, in a month and I said, who's Maurice? The likelihood that you'd be able to tell me who Maurice is is very high right? Even if you didn't remember anything else, oh my God, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the guy who's coming back to work, you know? So the idea is that if we have these solid representations of who we're building this for that we can actually relate to, then that will make us better able to really think about the wants and needs of real human beings as we try to design solutions for them. Using them in Scrum, and in Agile enables us to say, well, instead of just the word user, we're going to say Maurice, right? Um, and we're going to understand that the features that we build for Maurice are different than the ones we build for Sandra. And we're going to understand that Maurice has higher priorities. So if somebody comes in with a great idea for Sandra, even if it's an exec, we can push back and say the execs prioritized Maurice. So it gives us this, this different vocabulary. And sometimes I'm sure this is true for the work you did too. Sometimes it's not just the tool, it's the words, right? And sometimes if you can change, if you're stuck on a word, you can change the vocabulary and suddenly the communication gets a little unstuck. Um, so that's the fundamental idea behind it. And the, the big idea, you know, personas, originally the whole idea was to create them out of data, which is totally the classic way to do personas. I've evolved into thinking that, well, maybe using this conversation about regular people is a way to sort of align and change the conversation with executives so that they can agree and then communicate better with the people that are trying to do work for them. It sounds like you're making things less abstract, and I can envision someone with a T-shirt, WWMD, what would Maurice do? Absolutely. I mean, exactly, right? And I've had funny experiences like way back in the beginning of my career, you know, I started, I did this big project with personas at a company called Netpodium, which was one of the earlier, early competitors to WebEx and Placeware and now Zoom, right? I was, it, it died a, an acquisition-related death uh, back in like 2000. But anyway, after we used the personas for our design, I went back and asked all the engineers, what did you think about the personas? Were they helpful? And there was a particularly ornery engineer who said, oh, you mean... Mavis, I, we didn't use them at all. And Mavis is one of the personas. And I was like, <laughs> even you knowing her name means you did use them, you rat bastard. Um, so this memorability and this sort of sneak attack to say you're a human being, you relate to other human beings um, works. 
Well, it sounds like it makes the whole process less abstract because otherwise, to your point, it's a pissing contest between CXO number one and CXO number two versus framing it in terms of an actual uh, user, right? Or different types of users. And to your point, you can prioritize because in your example, Maurice um, maybe drives more revenue than someone like Sandra does. Not that Sandra's not important, but in the whole scheme of things, based on where we are, budget, timeframe, blah, 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 Maurice is probably going to win. That, that's exactly it. And you can say that in the next three months, that's it. In the next three months, if we don't make Maurice ridiculously happy, we're not going to hit our business goals. You can say something like that. Now, Sandra doesn't become less. She's not not important. But for the next three months, if we don't nail it for Maurice, and our whole idea behind our business strategy is to create the job search tool for professionals returning to work, then what the hell are we doing, right? Versus user this and user that and so is there any potential conflict or problem with collaboration among the different personas? And if so, how would you manage that? Well, so that's the whole reason why I got so interested in executives, right? So if they can, I, I realize that in order to adopt something like personas, they had to be involved in creating them, which is sort of this workshoppy thing that I worked out. But then what happens is the executives have to be the ones to prioritize them because here's what happens, right? So Six weeks into the product development cycle, the CEO, you know, at, we've we've prioritized Maurice. We've said out of out of hundred points, he gets a sixty, and Sandra gets forty. Right? That's our priorities. Well, six weeks later, the CEO is watching his nephew play Pokemon and comes in and says, "We really need to do this so that the best way to apply for a job is to throw a red and white ball at it on the screen." Right? Now he's the CEO. What are you going to do? Well, now what you can do is you can say, how does that help Maurice? Because you were part of the, it was your priority that put him at 60. So I understand why that's a super cool, fabulous idea, but tell me how it helps Maurice. Because if we do that, we can't do these three other unsexy things for Maurice. Then it becomes that stakeholder, that executive's decision. And it becomes that stakeholder arguing against themselves. They're the ones who put the priorities in place. Fascinating. It seems like a way of counteracting the whole shiny new thing syndrome, right? You and I have probably both seen this happen a bunch of times. You have a new exec who comes in, saw some ad or some YouTube video and is all high and mighty on whatever. And people ignore him or her because in a week that person will be onto something else. Yeah. Or they don't. And, you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. I think this is also one of the one of my biggest collaboration tools, to be honest with you. I've been thinking about this a lot since since we've talked about doing this podcast. Is I make people think, damn it. You do, you do. It's burned all your hair off, the amount of thinking you do. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, well, what is my most powerful collaboration tool? And it's not a collaboration tool. It's that in every project that I do, I insist on there being measurable goals for that project. So for example. Um, like if somebody came in with a shiny new thing, right? I would ask, I would ask, first of all, it's the C if it's their company, they're allowed to change their mind and chase the shiny new thing. My best tool is to say, well, if these are the goals that we know we have, and these are the ways we're going to measure them, how does that support those measurable business goals? And my, my little shtick about business goals is it's never inappropriate to ask for measurable goals for something, whether it's doing a persona effort or hiring a consultant or bringing on a new collaboration tool. I would ask, 
for example, like if we want to adopt Slack, what are our goals? Why are we doing that? What are the problems that we see today? What are, what are examples of those problems? What, what do we hope will be different after we adopt Slack? And how will we measure whether or not that happened, right? Then suddenly it becomes a question of, well, we've thought through this and we have a hypothesis about how this thing will help. And we have a way that we've dedicated ourselves to measure it. We'll, we'll have a way to know. So that insisting on written down goals, which, like I said, are never inappropriate to ask for, and by the way, never exist. I mean, everybody thinks they have all these measurable goals written down in companies, and they never do. So insisting on that, I think, is my most powerful tool. You mentioned before about swimming upstream, and then by insisting upon measurable goals, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I say this as someone who does not bat anywhere near a 1,000. Sometimes you probably piss a few people off. Uh yeah, well, so an example is like, you know, in the in, in all of my contracts about these workshops that I do, I say that, you know, step number one is articulating the, me- the business goals for the company. And I say articulating on purpose because it's not my job to write them, even though I always do. Um, I say, like, let's, let's write them down in a particular format. And they always say, take that out of the contract. You can cut out that section because we already have those. And I say, that's awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Send them on over. And they say, well, well, you have to sign an NDA. And I say, absolutely. Could not be more thrilled. And then it's crickets. It's something like, you know, Nadia, did you have those? Where's that board deck that we created? You know, so I think you said, inevitably, I piss people off. Well, I'm I'm really careful now um, about that. And I'm I think the fact that I'm a woman makes me a little less scary, although it absolutely shouldn't. Um, and I think pushing on these things, and I've, I've, you know, I, I do it with some humor. I do it with self-deprecation, and I do all of these things on purpose to help them. You know, my, my, I, my let me back up. The, the thing I would say here is that when I realized that executives weren't being clear, my first response is, "Damn them! Why aren't they being clear?" What I got to is if they're not being clear, then maybe it's my job to help them get there. Fair enough. But you could argue that they're, quote, cool ham loop. There are some men you just can't reach. So I'd argue that sometimes, and this happened to me maybe twice over the last year, I was intentionally prodding is probably not too strong of a word, but saying, hey, do we really have to do this over email? Have you heard of Slack? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, could we use that instead? And eventually when they realized that I really wanted to do it in Slack or it could have been Zoom or Teams or whatever, um, they said, look, enough Sparky, you know, this is the way we do it. And then I have to ask myself if I want to work with them, knowing that I'm going to be getting a deluge of emails when there is absolutely a better way of doing it. So uh, maybe pissed off is too strong of a term, but there is such a thing as you know, is bad business and some people you can't reach. So if in a way being your authentic self at the beginning, maybe dialing it down a little bit, right? Not being an absolutist when it comes to Slack. Yes, you can send me something to DocuSign, even though there's an app for that in Slack. You might be avoiding a headache down the road. Well, see, I'm the weird person that would get fascinated about why they're so resistant, hmm. right? I'm the you want to change people. Huh? You want to change people. You, uh, yeah, well, so do you. I mean- Absolutely. Right? So what I get fascinated by also is that is what people don't know about what it's like to be an exec, right? And the amount of times you sort of have to put your neck on the line and the fact that having that title doesn't make you any more magically able to make good decisions than any other human being in the world, right? And the fact that you're in a political 
freaking like landmine field. There, no, nothing you do does not have political ramifications. And everyone surrounding you has ulterior currents going on in what they're doing. And so if somebody is super resistant to being on Slack and they really want to do email, well, first of all, as a consultant, I'm like, all right, fine, do email. Like you're paying me, you know, it's, it's my job to wrap myself around you versus trying to change you into what I want you to be as a client. And I have to pick my battles. Now your battles are getting people onto Slack and getting them to collaborate better. That's not my battle. My battle is how can I get this person into, how can I get this group of people into a situation where their conversations are more productive for themselves and the rest of the organization? Neither one seems easy. No, no, I don't think it is. Right. And I think, I think, you know, we have to be a little manipulative and sneaky and, you know, you got to, com- you got to feed the ego, you got to compliment them. I mean, I can't even tell you how many clients I've told, wow, you're really better at this than anybody else is. And, mm. you know, all of them <laughs> pretty much, but it still works. Um Yeah, I learned a long time ago in consulting that one of the best tricks was to arrive at the solution in your head, but kind of coax them to it, right? And then they feel like it's their idea. Wow, that's that's a great idea. I didn't even think of that before. So there is a little bit of manipulation involved, but you could argue that they're probably going to get there more willingly or faster if they don't feel like they're fighting you. Um, But again, some people are so intractable and they may be open to doing certain things. But to your point, when it comes time to, to talk Turkey, are they willing to change their habits? Um, sometimes they are. And that's great. I have this simple view of the world. There are three groups of people, those that get it, those that don't get it and want to get it. And those that don't get it and never want to get it. I try like hell to avoid that third group because it never ends well. Yeah. In fact, you know, it's interesting that you say that I have lately been fascinated with this um, model that I first heard about from Jared Spool, who's another, like, is his a UX guru, and he has, uses it in his part of his presentation. He didn't come up with it, but it's this learning model that goes from unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent. Well, so unconsciously incompetent is you don't know what you don't know. You, you barge into something and you say, ah, oh, this can't be that hard, right? Consciously incompetent means I know there's a lot I don't know, right? And I'm willing to learn consciously competent, it's the next stage, which is I know I know what I'm doing. And then unconsciously competent is the last stage, which is where you get to, if you've been consulting for a long time, where you like know how to lead the conversation to get them to go where they're going to go. I don't, it's, it would be hard for me to tell you how I do that, like right now. But I know if you put me in that situation, I would go on autopilot and know how to sort of steer them in a direction. Oh. Right. And I think that's what you're saying too, right? The most dangerous ones are the unconsciously incompetent, where they don't know that they don't know but they're behaving as if they're, you know, experts. Yeah. That sounds a bit like, and I always screw this one up. It's something like the Dunning-Kruger effect. That's it. That's it. Stupid people don't know they're stupid. That's it. That's Dunning-Kruger. Yeah, that's it. I didn't know. Yeah. I had forgotten that. Yeah. Cool. But that's it. I will get you out of here on this. What book are you currently reading? Oh, I'm reading The Queen's Gambit because it was available in the online library and I was fascinated by the visuals that they did on the TV show. And I wanted to see how that came out of the book. I love that series. And I guess it was fictional, right? It wasn't based on a true story. I don't know. 
That's what I heard. Yeah, it came up on a different pod, but you know, I forget the actress's name, but she was amazing. I blew through that. Uh, it's been out for what, six or seven months, I think, yeah. or seven yeah. episodes. I think I knocked them out in two days. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Truly obsessive watching. Good yeah. stuff, Tamara. Thanks for joining me. Well, thanks so much. Great talking to you. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.